Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm graduate assistant Jacob Michael, and here with me is the Gortney Institute founder and director, Dr. Russ McCullough, our Menard family professor of philosophy and ethics, Dr. Justin Clark, our guest, Rachel Ferguson, and our undergraduate assistant, Jacob Caudill. All right. Well, welcome, listeners. Uh, we have our first repeat customer to the Faith and Economics podcast. It's uh, Dr. Rachel Ferguson. Uh, she's a professor of managerial philosophy and co-chair of the Lindenwood Honors College, as well as being the director of the Li- of Liberty and Ethics Center at the Hammond Institute. Um, so she's uh, very deep in kind of faith and philosophy and economics, and uh, I've attended a lot of the programming that she's done with her institute, and uh, it's an honor to have her back on the show. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So um, how this podcast shook out is um, Rachel called me on other matters uh, yesterday with some of the activities we're planning to do with this COVID crisis. The Gortney Institute is going to host a distance uh, colloquium where we have students uh, read uh, quite a bit of material, usually 100 to 200 pages or closer to 200, I guess, but depends on the on the content. And then we get together with about 16 of us and have a structured discussion is what this colloquium is. And we've been doing this for a few years. And uh, so the idea came to me after talking, uh, or I just had a communication with one of our donors and I said, oh, you know, we could, we could do this uh, via Zoom and try a video conference colloquium. And so I, I somehow relayed that to Rachel, and, and she was interested in it. So that's what we were following up on. We are considering whether to do religious liberty or we might be doing some other uh, – what was the other area, Justin, that we were looking at? Uh, the militarization of the police. Yes, yes. With all the COVID stuff going on, um, we've got potentially this – Oh, bigger government uh, looming, and are some of these policies that have been done going to be sticky? And so that's what's fun to bring Rachel on the show. Um, she had a special circumstance. Um, she is the closest person to me. Uh, I've met her husband a couple times, and her husband came down with a bad case of COVID, basically. And she started sharing her personal story, and I, I uh, was wondering if she'd be um, wanted to come on the show, and once we started learning about her personal story, then that got took us off into other topics. So, uh, Rachel, tell us what happened to Michael. Well, you know, we can't exactly pinpoint uh, how he contracted COVID-19, but the timing makes it look like it was a trip to Chicago, and ironically, he was just going for fun. He wanted to ride the Amtrak train and go listen to some blues and so forth, and few days after he returned, he started showing symptoms. First, it was just a dry cough. The next day, he was complaining they couldn't get warm. He went to an urgent care, and they told him that he just had an upper respiratory infection. This whole time, by the way, I'm, I live in St. Louis, but I was in sabbatical, on sabbatical in North Carolina, so I'm just talking to him on the phone. I'm not able to observe him at all. And being a, no offense, guys, but being a male, right, he played it down <laughs> and uh, assumed that it was nothing, right, and that it was just an upper respiratory infection. 
it kept progressing. He felt pretty miserable uh, several days in. And then his daughter, who had come home from college because everybody had gotten kicked out of their dorms, called me and said, dad's, you know, collapsed. Um, he's just in terrible shape. And so, you know, we basically forced him to go to the emergency room. And one interesting part of this story is that Michael actually has very little memory of any of this. Once he got really sick, he, he actually can hardly remember what happened. Uh, but he was actually like very combative. He didn't want to go and it was all very irrational. And I remember thinking, what is going on with him? I mean, it was really confusing. And so he went to the emergency room. They, te- they tested him, put him back on quarantine. So by the time I got back to St. Louis, uh, he was already on quarantine. So I actually didn't go home. I went to stay with a friend. And then about three days later, he had gotten so much worse and he was just sweating through the sheets and just having a terrible, terrible time with the coughing, couldn't sleep, that we went back to the emergency room. Because of his background with heart issues, they admitted him right away. Um, He is a heart attack survivor and has been having some SVT, which is like racing heart issues in the last couple of months. And so they brought him in immediately. And actually, he was on a ventilator pretty quickly. Not a ventilator. I'm sorry. He was not on a ventilator. He was on oxygen. So my husband never had to be intubated. He wasn't that bad. But he did have to be on oxygen for almost the, well, really the entirety of his stay at the hospital, which ended up being nine days. Um, He was in the ICU. Yeah, he was in for a long time. He was in the ICU for about three of those days because he was up to seven liters a minute on his oxygen. And once you go up past a certain amount of oxygen, they put you in the ICU so they can keep a closer eye on you. They all had to wear, you know, hazmat suits, basically, (laughs) to come in and check on him. So he had very little human contact. And he actually hadn't brought his cell phone to the hospital in his confusion, his mental confusion. He hadn't brought his cell phone. And so I was only able to talk to him if the nurse brought in a phone and a paper bag at the hospital. And so, I'm sorry, in a plastic bag. And so, you know, it wasn't even like he could entertain himself on Facebook or anything. You know, I mean, <laughs> he just had to lay there. And so it was really, it was really an awful ordeal. And he admitted to me later that he begged them to put him into a coma. He was so miserable. And they were like, you're not bad enough, you know, for us to, <laughs> to sedate you. But, um, you know, he's a pretty tough dude. So that's saying a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's pretty healthy in general, too, correct? Yeah. I mean, besides the heart attack that he had eight years ago, he really has no physical issues. He plays on three baseball teams. He's a very active guy, eats very well. And so he was amazed. He was amazed at how aggressive the disease was. And, you know, when I would talk to him, he couldn't really say anything. I mean, he would say two words and start coughing because the COVID cell literally like attaches to the side of your lungs and sort of compromises them. And so um, it was terrible. I mean, we had very little communication. At at one point, I just started reading to him just so he would have something going on, you know. And so I would just read to him and he could just listen and not try to talk. So anyway, so eventually they, you know, they, they saw that he could get by with lower and lower levels of oxygen. And then a couple of Fridays ago, they let him out. But they said he still needs to be on quarantine for 14 days because we don't really know anything about contagion. And he, I was originally going to pick him up and I was going to go in quarantine with him. But he was so darn nervous about getting anybody else sick. He said, let's just stay separate until the quarantine's over. So I'm actually not going home till tomorrow. Hmm. So I haven't seen him in, in weeks and weeks and weeks, but 
very excited to see him again. He's he, about a week in of being at home. He felt normal again. So when you put this whole thing together, we're talking about three and a half week uh, ordeal. I mean, it was intense. It was intense. And my husband is in media and communications, so he's done a lot of interviews, uh, which I think has been a neat thing where, you know, something he felt he could contribute. And he is looking into plasma donation now. Oh. So hmm. that's, a, that's about where we're at at the moment. But, yeah, I mean, one of the most surprising things to me is that I guess in some cases – it can actually affect your mental state. And so he, you know, I said to him, I said, do you know that you argued strongly against going anywhere and you were saying things that didn't make sense? And he says, no, I don't remember any of that. Yeah, that was surprising when you told me that. I didn't, I didn't hear that from other cases that basically he was going a little, a little crazy, basically, and being irrational with things. So. Yeah, and I wish they would mention that because there is an article in the New York Times that mentions it and says that there are patients coming in who can't remember their names and various things. And the nurse told me, look, low oxygen can make you irrational, you know, anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you add high fever on top of that, I think they should be mentioning to people, you know, that, that their loved ones may say some things that don't make a lot of sense. (laughs) And you may have to force them to do what they need to do because they're not thinking straight. So yeah, that's an interesting element of the whole situation. So you uh, had posted on oh, Facebook or something um, that Reason Magazine article, and I read that. I found it very interesting on kind of the mistakes of uh, the CDC and uh, being critical of, of kind of gov- the government involvement and how we haven't had testing and stuff. And <clears throat> I was wondering, now that you've got your, your personal experience along with uh, your other knowledge of the principles of liberty and freedom. Uh, how are you taking that? Do you think we're we're on the right track, or should we be uh, getting the economy back open here? What What are your general thoughts there? Oh my goodness, a lot. So I also wrote an op-ed for the Joplin Globe called "The Power of Civil Society," mm. and in that one, what I did is I contrasted the failures, really the abject failures of our low-level bureaucracies like the FDA and the CDC with really the incredible innovation and efforts that we've seen in civil society to adjust as quickly as possible, both in markets and just in voluntary efforts to adjust as quickly as possible to the new situation. I think it's a wonderful opportunity for classical liberals to bring some attention to the power of civil society. I would say that, you know, the CDC... And the FDA, the point that I made in my, in my Facebook post was simply that we want to be mad at someone and everyone's mad at Trump and you probably should be mad at Trump. I'm not saying you shouldn't be. But when you look at bureaucracies, you can't really be mad at someone, right? It's not someone who is evil or someone who made a mistake. It's, it's an organization whose incentive structure is so dysfunctional that it is simply not doing what it was set up to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the CDC sent out tests that it monopolized. It insisted that it had to be the one to send out the test. Right. It has to have it its blessing. Failed. Yeah. Kind of yeah, gar- keeping its control. Yeah. And the FDA telling labs all over the country who were creating their own tests that they weren't allowed to use them and they needed to stop. And we actually have doctors who, who, committed civil disobedience and tested anyway, mm-hmm. um, which is how we found out what the situation was in Seattle because of Dr. Chu, who just stood up 
to them and said, no, I'm going to keep going because she knew how, how dangerous the situation was. So we're really, it's a, it's a, you know, people are kind of joking about there aren't any libertarians in a pandemic, but I beg to differ because you're seeing exactly how government bureaucracies failed badly at the, at the most important time, which was that early detection and testing. That's what's made the difference in places like South Korea, who got right on it, started testing people immediately, quarantined the people who tested positive strictly, and then were able to allow other people to continue going about their business because people could always be tested. And so when we talk about how laissez-faire to be and stuff about opening the economy, one of the points that I always like to make is, well, you know what, if we had handled this correctly in the first place, we wouldn't have had to have taken such drastic measures, um, or at least not long as we're going to have to now um, in terms of suppression by everybody staying home. And so I'm hoping, of course, that we end up getting the ability to test widely and even to do antibody tests so that people like my husband can go back to work. I mean, he's immune. And so presumably, right? right? And so he could get an antibody test and know for sure that he's immune. People who are immune could work. People who are not vulnerable, you know, that are young, single, living alone, could work in in a situation where you can maintain social distancing wear masks, uh, you know, use proper hygiene and see just if we can keep as many people functioning as possible because the economic fallout is not going to be pretty. And the other point I want to make about the economic fallout is I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they think Wall Street. They think Wall Street is trying to protect themselves and, uh, you know, that this is about the stock market. But I'm not talking about the stock market. Yeah. I'm talking about Joe Schmo, you know. Yeah, Main Street, Main on... Street, Ottawa, Kansas. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and most people don't necessarily have months and months of prudent reserve on hand. And so they depend on the paycheck that they're going to get this week or this month. And that's who I want to be able to support here. Because whenever there's an economic downturn, the people who are going to suffer the worst are always those who are on the margins. Yeah. I just want to second that. I think like the extent to which Wall Street will suffer, if Wall Street suffers, you know, the, the average American who is on the margins will suffer much, much more. That's right. Yeah, that's right. These other things will recover in time. And, and the people who have those sorts of investments have time. Exactly. Right. But we're talking about people who don't have time. And so when we talk about, you know, the the economic question, I think people don't realize that we're talking about lives. We're talking about the same thing that we talk about with the virus. It's lives versus lives, you know, that we're looking at in terms of trade off. But I also understand that you do at this time have to seriously rein in human contact because this thing is very, very contagious. Do you have anything uh, or do you have any thoughts about, for instance, the mask recommendations being, you know, changed? Yeah. So that's an interesting one because it, it never made sense to me from the beginning. Um, I lived in Tokyo for six weeks when I was young and I was always impressed by the commitment that people in those close quarters in a place like Tokyo made to always wearing a mask if there was ever any concern. Mm. And it's just a very good hygienic practice that many Asian countries practice all the time because they live very close together. And so the idea that it wouldn't help made no sense to me at all. 
No, I know. Do they, wait, I, I, I want to ask on the Asian countries because uh, I've never thought of this. Is it cultural that like if you have a sniffle or a cough or something, when you go out into public, you'll you'll put the mask on because they're in close quarters? Yes. Or is that right? I did not know that. Okay, yes. I, I mean I've I've seen lots of them. You know, putting it on. I didn't think of it being a signal. I thought it was more about pollution or wanting to, you know, maybe they were a little paranoid about their own health or something, but I didn't really think about it being a, well, there's a chance I might be able to get somebody else sick. So I'm going to wear this today. It's not that they wear it every day. Right. And let me tell you, I mean, if you get shoved onto a Tokyo train, I mean, they, they will pack you on there really tight. And so that's a society that has to be responsible if they're going to be able to, you know, enjoy their system, their subway system. And so there's more, you know, they always say in Tokyo, there's more going on underground than there is above ground. I mean, it is really, really busy underground. And so they have to be very, very conscientious. And they are. It's a very good habit that many Asians um, have. And so I was just puzzled by that completely. Now, Justin, do you buy these ideas that they were trying to stop people from hoarding the masks so that it could be provided to medical workers? Or what do you think the motivation was? I think that's the only explanation that makes any sense. And that's what I thought they were doing when they said it. I remember telling my wife, mm. um, you know, this is insane. They are just lying to people, <laughs> and, uh, telling them masks don't work when of course masks work. That's the reason we give them, we, we want doctors to wear them. What they should be saying is something like, you know, for the average American, you know, the difference between an N95 mask and uh, a mask you can make yourself is very minimal, uh, right. but that makes a big difference for a healthcare worker. So let's prioritize and make sure the healthcare workers get the masks that they need while we're also trying to be as safe as possible as civilians. Um, it just made no yeah, sense to me. Right. And it was such an obvious mistake and one that you know, it's I, w- I was just boggled by how dumb a move that was yeah and and very transparent it's like oh well we said this last <laughs> week but now we're saying this other thing it's like you look like idiots. <laughs> right yeah that was but, weird but the other point that we can that we can pull back to if we buy this story which i agree with you it's the only one that makes any sense which is that they were trying to stop hoarding And that is that President Bush, President Obama, I mean, if you go back and look, there were huge pushes to get us prepared for a bad pandemic because we are living in a global society. We've already seen several big pandemics since since the rise of globalization. And we know that that's just a new kind of vulnerability that we have in this reality. And somehow... They didn't pull the trigger on the store, you know, on storing enough masks or they did, but then they, they didn't replenish them or something like that. And so it just brings me back to the point of spending so much money on these bureaucracies that then don't even take care of the most basic things that they're <laughs> right. there to anticipate. Yeah, that aren't there, can't had, perform. We should have had a warehouse full of these N95 masks waiting because a pandemic was predicted. And it's not like they Um, deteriorate. They they don't even break down. Like they could have those five-year-old masks were probably work functionally the same that were stored somewhere. I I suppose. I don't know. I don't know about expiration, but that may be true. 
It really speaks to, I think, you know, the low time preference that our system of government yeah. encourages. Right. Where, yep. Good point. Uh, you know, it makes sense for a, a member of Congress to spend all their time working on their reelection rather than building up something that may be a problem within the next 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, that looks like a good spot. We kind of ran a little long for our first break. So I have a cliffhanger when we come back um, that I think that there's a big question of when do we get back, right? So in a country that believes in liberty in theory, uh, when do we actually uh, get back to work? And, and uh, I've got uh, something to throw out and I'll leave you hanging there. We'll be back in 30 seconds. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at or call us at 785-248-2500. Thank you, Gortney. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Okay, and we're back here with Dr. Rachel Ferguson, uh, the Hammond Institute, uh, talking about various COVID issues with her personal story. And, and so I think the when to get back to work question was a big one. And I heard uh, somebody mention this that I thought resonated with me in terms of having a more objective mechanism to open things back up. And that was, let's kind of change the status quo. Like, let's all expect we're going to get the virus. Right. So we're we're basically mm -hmm. going to live in a new world where people are going to get exposed. So it's not the government's job to protect us from the virus, per se. So if we have that mentality, then what's the thing that we should you know, trigger to get us back is that we won't overwhelm our medical facilities, uh, both physical facilities and human resources so that our medical staff aren't working, you know, hours on end over time. But I think that could be an interesting metric to say, you know, are let's just open the economy back up because at this point the curve is flattened and we believe that you're going to get exposed. We now know a lot more that some people are going to get it worse than others. Uh, like your husband, Michael got it bad. Other people might just have a little sniffle. As long as the medical system can absorb the number of cases, then let's just go back to work and, and individuals will make their own choices on whether they wear a mask or whether they go out as often as they did before, or whether they go to the church or party or whatever. We're back to individual decision-making at that point. If we feel like we can, our medical system can absorb them. So Rachel, uh, what's your thoughts on that or anything else on when, on the issues of when we get back to work? 
Yeah, I I think that's right, but we have to be very careful. So, I mean, obviously that was the whole point of flattening the curve, not just to stop the fast spread of infection, but also to make sure that whoever is infected could actually be served because there was room in the hospital for them. And of course, anybody who's working on COVID-19 patients aren't working on other patients, right? And right. people still have other other ailments. You yeah, know, my wife actually patients. just had an issue that she wanted to tend to and they're like, uh, well, it's not real urgent, so call us back in May when this thing's done. <laughs> she just got exactly, told that today. Right. So. And, and I have a friend who works at the VA who said, you know, there are things where I'm having to make judgment calls about how much of an emergency this is or how, whether I should, you know, call this an elective surgery or not. And she said, you know, in some cases, you know, I feel like it's safe to put it off, but, you know, mm -hmm. I, I could end up being wrong, right? And right. this person could have a health problem because we didn't end up catching something as early. So there's- And that is so foreign. That's so foreign to us as Americans, right? Like we don't get in line for healthcare. We just go to the, go to the doctor and pay, like, <laughs> it, you know, like Canada and, and some other places. We don't have a line. We, we, we're not told come back in a month. <laughs> so that's a little bit foreign That's right. Us. It was interesting to see some actual graphs, you know, showing the excess capacity of beds you know, ventilators, ICU beds, and things like that. America has the, the most access right. capacity, you know, and that, that's what free markets, you know, leads to. So that's very good, but we can still be overwhelmed if we're not wise. So I think doing the strict shutdown for a brief period, you know, of several weeks may just be necessary in order to not overwhelm our hospitals. But I agree with you that there's got to be creative ways to get the people who are not vulnerable um, and who, you know, need to be at work out there somewhere, right? Can't do their work from home to get them back out, whether that be antibody tests that allow them to, you know, know for sure that they're immune or just a lot of testing. You know, a lot of places they're taking people's temperatures uh, whenever they come in and out of places. And so if you don't have a temperature, you can, you can continue working. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see some of, or I hope that we're going to see some of that rather than this very ham fisted, either we're open or we're closed kind of attitude that, that I feel like I hear from a lot of people, you know, just shut everything down. I mean, for instance, in the state of Missouri, which is where I'm from, you know, we have rural areas and we have urban areas. And as you can imagine, they're different politically, too. Well, the rural areas in many places, you know, they're not going to have more than 10 people in the grocery store anyway. You know, they, they <laughs> have a, a natural kind of distance between them. And so if there's a wisdom about staying far apart, then really many of them could go about their business and do the work that they do. Like, can I go into the auto repair guy and have him change my oil? Well, sure. Right. I don't have to have close contact. In order to do that, I can wipe down my keys. So there's a lot of things that it strikes me we could keep moving on um, or put back into place as soon as we can, such that, you know, we're at least keeping the wheels of the economy in motion. I, I have stopped actually kissing my mechanic when he changes my oil. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good practice. Exactly. That's good social distancing, Justin. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about this uh, Cato thing you were mentioning um, that she's, what, what new things did you learn uh, today with that? Yeah, so there was a Cato webinar at noon today where they brought in several people who'd written papers 
specifically, you know, running a lot of numbers and modeling. Of course, one of the big debates is how accurate are our models? There's still a lot we don't know. These are very people who are very careful with the data, so they were very clear that the, you know, there was a large range in their estimates of how many weeks, you know, they thought we needed to be shut down or whatever it might be. But one of the papers was especially interesting because it was on the way that the 1918 pandemic affected the economy. And, you know, he made a great point, which is that the places like St. Louis, <laughs> my hometown, that did flatten the curve and did act quickly by isolating and doing hygiene and masks and things like that, they actually had the same or better economic outcomes than other places that didn't limit people's economic activity, but also had much higher rates mm. of the disease for obvious reasons, right? Because you've got way more people sick. And so they're not able to contribute. So, so economically, there is a reason to be conservative, at least at the moment. But in the long run, no economy can just shut down indefinitely, right? Yeah. And so there was a lot of talk of stages, starting with the suppression, then moving to the mitigation, then having maybe categories of people who are back at work versus those who need to stay isolated, and then really making a plan. This was interesting, too, is that they wanted to emphasize making a plan for next time, because we are in a globalized world. There will be global pandemics, and it is ridiculous that we are not prepared um, in the way that we you know, really should have been and could have been. And so learning from this and learning the right lessons from this, not learning, oh, my gosh, you have to shut down the whole, yeah. the whole economy, <laughs> rather learning, oh, my gosh, we should have had, you know, we should have had everybody that had any ability making tests right away so that we could track and trace and then let everybody else, you know, live their lives in a fairly normal way with just a certain amount of social distancing, the way that South Korea did, Taiwan and Singapore have all been very successful in their handling of the disease, and they haven't had to completely shut down their economies for longer than two weeks. So we want to learn that lesson, not the lesson that we sometimes learn, which is last time we did it this way, so that's probably what will happen again. I hope, I hope not, right? I hope we look at the countries that had a better outcome and we follow their example instead. Right. I think history would say suggest otherwise that that won't happen. But uh, Yes, I'm sorry to report. <laughs> uh, do you think there's anything to be learned from Sweden's handling of the uh, the COVID-19 issue, or do you think it's too early to tell in Sweden? Yeah, so that's something that I've been asking. I actually asked that on the Cato uh, discussion, and they did address it, and I asked it of my friend uh, Josh Swamidas at WashU, who's a biologist as well. And so basically, for the listeners who aren't keeping up with it, Sweden is kind of unusual because their idea is that, look, everybody's going to have to get this disease anyway. We're going to need herd immunity. You guys who are all hiding in your houses aren't going to be exposed to the disease, which means that once you come out again, we're just going to have another round in the fall, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then we're going to have another big economic downturn. And so they were doing a little more of a laissez-faire approach. But Josh's point, which doesn't fully explain what his views are on herd immunity, but he said, look, basically, their rates of hospitalization are getting so high that they are being overrun now. Oh, they are. And so at least they are. Yeah. So at least in the short term, this is not working um, for them. 
And then, of course, my argument against the Swedish model, because I'd love for that to be true, you know, that we could be sort of laissez-faire. But my argument against it is, what if we do come up with an effective therapy in the meantime, right? Um, we're not, it's going to take 18 months to get a vaccine. So I'm not talking about a vaccine, but I'm talking about the different drugs that people have been experimenting with that possibly you could get sick, but be effectively treated. And yeah. maybe they're, you know, cheap enough and widely enough distributed that that would work. Well, I would hate to have sacrificed, you know, members of my society to the first round, which I let go wild, like Sweden is doing. And then only to find out that we could have treated them, right, if we had just kept them safe. And so that's sort of my issue um, with the Swedish model. But it is an interesting kind of natural experiment to see how theirs goes. However, because their hospitals are being overrun, they are starting to implement isolation. And so I don't know whether we'll really get to see the experiment fully play out. But uh, and the other thing to take into account is that I don't remember whether the Swedish have done anything, you know, legally uh, in terms of isolation or if they're just asking people to do it. But they're fairly homogeneous society and sort of docile. You know, they're obedient people, mm. <laughs> which I think makes <laughs> that's, that's an issue. Yeah. That's an issue that's been brought, brought up to me several times, which right. is, you know, to what extent does culture play a role here where, you know, if you tell somebody not to do it in America, they practically want to do it. <laughs> yeah. And, so and the, the, Italy was that way too, right? The Italians in general are non-compliant, I think, um, was brought up, but, yeah. but they were doing pretty good once, once they learned how severe it was getting, they were all of a sudden being compliant. But I think as a culture, I remember that being talked about with the Italians. Well, and and the Italians are very affectionate too. So, you know, everyone's hugging and kissing mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, but it is interesting because as a classical liberal, you know, I'm an individualist, but I'm not a hyper individualist. You know, I think that I think that individuals fare best when they thrive within a healthy community. And we do have to have the virtues of solidarity. Those are important virtues. And really, a free people needs to have virtue in order to limit themselves so that they're not limited by their government. And one thing that I that frustrated me about Governor Parsons choice to shut down Missouri was simply that I had not heard that we were having any problems with compliance. So I thought, well, hey, if people are virtuously limiting themselves, then let them do it. Right. You don't need to bring down the heavy hand necessarily. Um, of the government. And I think actually what he passed was fairly weak. Anyway, it may have been a little throwing of a bone to the urban centers, but <laughs> yeah, but that question of culture and sort of vice and virtue, I think does play in here. The Asians have certain habits, you know, as people who live close together and have to have high levels of discipline and that has served them well in this situation. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I, I mean, those are, sound like pretty good closing words to me. I don't know if anybody's got any, some final thoughts, but uh, this is about the right time. We could uh, call it a, call it a day here. Dustin? I have one final question, which is given that you've had such a personal relationship with coronavirus, is there anything about having that personal relationship that changed your opinion on what we ought to be doing? Um, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do think that I can see how a certain sort of personality could be pulled in by kind of the trutherism, if you know what I mean, 
like, oh, you know, is this all just being exaggerated? Is this just a bunch of fear-based stuff to take our liberties away? You know, this kind of mindset, which you do see a little bit of on the internet. And so I, I personally think of myself as more sort of straightforwardly data-based, but I can see the draw of that for someone. And even particularly the audiences that my husband had access to, because he tends to be on, you know, sort of conservative radio talk shows. I think that was very good that he was able to come on and say, hey, guys, I'm one of you. This happened to me. And it's really bad. It's really aggressive. It's really dangerous. It's really contagious. Please take it seriously. So I don't know that I personally was swayed, but I think our story had the ability to sway others who might, you know, who might be tempted, right, to go in a little more of a skeptical direction to say, no, it's, it's for real this time. It's not a ploy. This is a real problem. And we need to, we need to listen to, to what Dr. Fauci is recommending we do. All right. Well, that sounds great. Um, Thank you, Rachel, for being on. I knew uh, it's always a fun conversation with you and appreciate your insights, your personal ones, as well as your uh, more academic ones that you bring to the table. So thank you very much for being on. Oh, thanks. It was really nice to talk to you guys today. All right. And I, I couldn't help but have a quote. Maybe you guys have to correct me. I believe this is Thomas Sowell that says, uh, I think we all need to remember that there's not going to be any solutions, only trade-offs. And we need to kind of be oh. thinking about it in that, in that way. Very good. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. And uh, if you feel so inclined, like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating. Helps us raise the, through the ranks of uh, the search engines. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.